When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, okay. okay. Brett Weinstein. Benjamin Boyce. <laughs> five years later. Yes, five years later for me and actually for everyone else as well. Oh, I'm, I'm in that camp too. Yes. It's been five years. It's been quite a five years for you. Do you have a, do you have like a, a sentence that you create every, every year? You're like, okay, five years or four years or three years. This is what's happened to me. Can you encapsulate the last five years into a... I mean, the way I encapsulated has not changed. I, I essentially feel that a tornado picked me and my family up May 23rd, 2017, between 9 and 10 in the morning, and it hasn't put us down since. And if anything, I would say it has begun to pick up large numbers of other people who are now caught in a world that makes no sense, in which things swirl around and great violence is done. So anyway, no, I don't, I don't really mark time in any particular way. It's just that everything about my life changed and I'm not really expecting a normal life to return. Yeah. Um, to stretch that metaphor uh, with the whirlwind, um, I'm, I'm sure it's dizzying at times, but it doesn't seem, uh, I'm sure that you have periods of uh, being used to that swirl, but things keep on happening for you. You keep on developing and growing and, and getting picked up by larger currents and being flung into different stratospheres going up and down. How have you stayed stable in that? Um, well, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm now hated by a whole new set of people. <laughs> um, so that's interesting. I find it fascinating because at some level, the, the pattern has now become clear, which is there is a particular thing that I do, and it has caused trouble many times in my life. It involves saying what needs to be said, trying to figure out what's taking place, saying what needs to be said about it, and being deaf to the signs that you're not supposed to talk about that thing. And I guess uh, it is just interesting now to see that this pattern repeats itself topic after topic. In many cases, people who uh, embrace you when you say things that need to be said on one topic are horrified when you say things that need to be said about the next topic, which is a fascinating fact mm -hmm. in and of itself. So uh, it's, it's hard to know what to say, except that in one way, I think my life has been a training ground in a sense for mm -hmm. this exact thing. And somebody does need to say what needs to be said. And I'm not arguing it's just me, but those of us who do it are um, both rewarded and punished for, for the, the way we show up in the world. Mm -hmm. And what you end up saying, at least the stuff that you say that gets uh, strong reactions has to do with power has to do with uh, challenging a narrative or inconveniencing some sort of story. Maybe, maybe story could be one way of saying it, or power is another way of saying it. 
I would say it is a a power narrative that power has a story it likes to tell that explains mm. why it has the rights that it does and why it is engaging in the behaviors that it is. And anybody who is insensitive to power and says, hey, actually, that story doesn't add up. Right? Here's how we know. Let's look at the facts. They, they don't square with that narrative um, ends up being a threat. And so uh, power on the one hand and useful idiots on the other group together and challenge that threat to, to the narrative. Mm-hmm. Have you read uh, Burnham, uh, The Machiavellians? I've been going through Machiavellian thinking, and he, he, the Machiavelli's, uh, he's basically the Darwin of power. He, he basically, uh, his project and those of his followers were trying to do something that hadn't been done and still very hard to do, is to just describe how power operates and to strip it of all of the, uh, you know, the, the camouflage that it puts upon itself. And so... According to the Machiavellians, it's a constant in human society. It's always going to be there and it's going to change window dressing and it can have more or less liberty or more or less freedom for those who it controls. But it's always going to be a small group of people controlling everybody else. And so I know that you have thought about um, you're always thinking about how society's running and how people operate. And so you're critiquing power you're constantly critiquing power or at least you're trying to give input into power so that it makes the right decisions right so i'm just wondering what what have your thoughts been or your experiences have been with being the target of power and uh what what has that taught you or something that you can say about how our current world or the world itself the human sphere operates that we can be engaged with it smarter and still carve out liberty for ourselves well, <clears throat> I'm intrigued by your argument that Machiavelli is the Darwin of power. Essentially, you're arguing that he described how it worked in a in a, a way that transcended what was comprehensible before. And I think there's some some truth in this. But <clears throat> you say how power works. And the question is, do, to describe how power works, is that to say this is how power will always work? Or are there systems that alter it. And, and I would just point out mm-hmm. that the United States is a system intended to disrupt the way power normally functions, which is not to say that power does not function in the US or that the founders intended it not to function, but they intended to literally democratize it. And that was a very radical thing to do. We are now at a point where it's possible that their experiment in democracy is coming to an end. Um, which is worth contemplating. I think we will be much worse off for its absence. But Machiavelli described the natural state of power, perhaps. The founders and some others have experimented with ways of uh, readjusting the relationship so that it doesn't function in that brutal way. Mm -hmm. And um, I would also point out that, you know, if Machiavelli is the Darwin of power than maybe Edward Bernays, the founder of advertising, essentially of propaganda theory, um, is, you know, he's what? It's Anthony Fauci or something. Um, When was he uh, uh, active? When was Bernays active? Um, Early 20th century. Okay. In the U.S.? 
I believe so. I should know better. He was actually Freud's cousin. Um, but anyway, I'm going to not say more about him than I know. Yeah. But nonetheless, the point the point is what he outlined is a mechanism for manipulation. He basically, you know, Darwin did not instruct nature how to uh, select for things. Um, he described how it works. Bernays provides a toolkit for uh, mass manipulation. And uh, that is something that we ought to be aware of now. So your question about my relationship to power. Yes, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with the way power behaves. I'm not uncomfortable with the fact of power, right? Power properly wielded could be a very positive thing, and it has been. Um, but power wielded uh, by one lineage against another, by one group against another, is extremely destructive and it is always unjust and so i don't know i think my role at some level is to point out what power is doing and what effect it is having <clears throat> and what risk it is putting us to mm -hmm. and uh, you know i guess your point is uh it's not surprising that um power would would react well, power is going to react, but it's also going to be wielded by uh, the minority is always going to be wielding power over the majority. The majority doesn't have time to show up to seven hour Zoom meetings or to seven day protests and, you know, reacting to power either crudely or by engaging in the mechanisms of power. So it's always going to have some sort of relationship to the populace and your role and my role in a certain respect is trying to educate people so that they are more aware of what's going on in the world so that they can agree or disagree with the narratives that are out there or with the rules uh, and the guidelines, let's say, that are put on them. And um, so power needs a, a voice and power needs somebody speaking against it um, in a way uh, in order for uh, engagement can happen consciously. Um. <clears throat> Well, I, I question your formulation about power is always wielded by a minority. Um, in fact, the Evergreen story says that, and it also says that a majority, um, you know, a mob effectively mm -hmm. tried to wield power over a minority of people who disagreed with them. So I think, you know, there are elements in which anything that can wield power will, will do so or will tend to do so. And I don't want to jump to the conclusion that it's always one thing or the other. Um, I think, you know, I don't know, we've gotten into a very, I don't know, somber and remote <laughs> yeah, topic. We can bring it back home. Yeah. But, uh, but the thing, if you're in my role, which is to call attention to uh the abuse of power and the injustice of it and the fiction that it is predicated upon. What, what impresses is the breadth and power of its toolkit, right? The ways in which somebody who simply speaks an obvious truth is now stigmatized and marginalized are incredible. And, you know, we were certainly warned of this by um, many of the great authors of uh, American literature in particular, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I, I guess one of the things that I'm, I'm learning in the last couple of years is that when I look at something like Orwell and I say that felt to me like he was exaggerating, right? That the, the idea it's too stark, right? Power will be more subtle than that. And then here we find ourselves in 2021 and 2022, looking at a world turned upside down and Mm-hmm. No, he wasn't exaggerating at all. We're literally we're literally arguing about some of his test cases, right? Two plus two uh, does or does not equal four, right? This could hardly be more Orwellian. So, in any case, there's a there's a ferocious toolkit out there, and it's it's a, a very interesting lesson to have it pointed at you. Well, and by toolkit, we're assuming that there's multiple different lines of attack or multiple different tools that are being used and going through them one by one or being surprised by suddenly you thought you were dealing with a scalpel, you're dealing with a bandsaw, you know, you're like, oh, wait, what's going on here? You have to kind of readjust to uh, the pressures that you're being put under to either agree with power or to not disagree with power in the very least. Yeah. And in the end, you know, there are a certain number of things that can be used to motivate somebody to do things that are against their values, right? To say things they don't believe, to not say things they know need to be uh, described, um, to stigmatize others, for example. Mm -hmm. And in some way, the particulars of how power drives a person to do this are highly variable. You know, the bandsaw, the scalpel, and, and everything else. But the basic game is pretty consistent, which is why uh, Orwell and Kafka uh, and Huxley were able to describe so much that just suddenly shows up out of nowhere on topics these people had no idea about, because it's always <clears throat> it's always similar. And, you know, if you go into the, the academic literature and you look at something like uh, Rene Girard, and his theory of effectively scapegoating, uh, that this is, you know, a a mechanism that unites people. And so the desire to have a scapegoat on which bad things can be blamed as a sort of galvanizing force, right? You know, you you see the same sorts of theme described analytically rather than narratively, but there is something almost timeless about the way uh, people who challenge power are dealt with. Mm -hmm by people who aren't even necessarily in power, but motivated by some sort of structure that would reward them for punishing. Well, that's, that's part of the game of power is um, power. You know, if you have a powerful individual and that powerful individual decides he wants to force everybody to behave in other ways, it won't work because everybody won't put up with it. But if that very powerful individual decides to incentivize a large number of people at a lesser level of power, Right. And then those people incentivize people at the next level of power. You can get a snowball effect. And mm-hmm. as long as uh, the people who are doing the coercion are either being rewarded or perceive that they are being rewarded or will be, uh, it works. It's, an, mm-hmm. it's a ferocious force and it gets people to say things that they don't believe, or Mm -hmm. maybe it gets them to believe things that they didn't believe before because they will be better off accepting them in their own minds than they would have been. Mm -hmm. In the case of like large scale, um, 
moments of that, of scapegoating or of uh, power, uh, let's just say decision makers want society to run this way. And the Evergreen State College, it's wild enough to have some pretty phenomenal activity there, but small enough for us to actually kind of analyze it and kind of figure out this is kind of a closed system. Um, but even then trying to make sense of what happened at Evergreen, one way of analyzing that is to say it was kind of initiated intentionally by a small group of people on another level. It's kind of, it kind of just happened because there was a zeitgeist there. It was kind of, everybody was participating in this ideology, let's say that eventually manifests in this sort of behavior, or at least incentivizes this kind of group dynamic. And it collapsed around an ideology, not necessarily one person, one person putting it into play. So when we get into something like world politics or um, let's say virology or let's say that some terrible disaster happens that the United States and every other country has to deal with, we can see that a lot of the decision makers are trying to make decisions along the way and they might be culpable in it happening or not. But because it's such a big system, it's such a big story, it's tempting to try to collapse it in our minds as somebody's intending this all to happen, somebody's intending power to operate this way, when it's much more uncomfortable to say... Uh, maybe it's just kind of a, a emergent property of people under stress. So I'm wondering, with your uh, your expertise and your thinking about this, how can we sort out like the cabal versus the uh, just the chaos collapsing around a certain pattern? Well, <clears throat> that is in fact my model that there you have a, a mixture of emergent phenomena and intentional phenomena, which can be you know, conspiratorial, people can gather in a room and they can plan, but it's a mistake to assume that it will be either uh, completely in general. And so there's a question, you know, the way, the way you deal with this is the same way you study any phenomenon, which is you hypothesis test. And, you know, what you don't want to do is, is imagine that because you have a model that predicts the way things will behave, that you necessarily know what they are. So, um, hmm. we can, we can look into these dynamics and we can say we have, uh, psychological chaos, right? We have people who are, uh, under duress. Dis they're, they're, they're dismayed. I, I don't think duress. I think they are, hmm. um, dismayed that they have a correct sense that the system is not fairly structured that the deal they have been handed is not uh, one with which they will make progress so that they, uh, they are told a story about pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. That is simply impossible from where they are. And that anger is tapped into by cynical people. It may be cynical people in their neighborhood or that they circulate on social media with that just simply take advantage of this for very <laughs> mundane, small scale purposes and then it can explode. So, you know, if you look at what Black Lives Matter was before George Floyd and what it became, and then what it became, you know, sort of caught between George Floyd and Donald Trump and COVID, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the point is, well, I, I don't imagine that those who structured BLM were building it to catch fire in that way. But they certainly were ready to take advantage of the opportunity when it arose. So um, hmm. I, I guess, I guess, you know, what you've said is right. There's emergent properties and there's intentional 
plans that people have. And we are often looking at a mixture and it's very hard to know which is which. Mm -hmm. And when challenging power, is that one way of running a hypothesis of testing it, of, of seeing its contours? Let's say uh, challenging a given narrative in a certain way and then seeing how it responds to that. Um, not inherently. You have to have a hypothesis and then you could say to yourself, well, if, you know, if it is true that this person is actually trying to accomplish this unstated aim, then when I make this challenge, they will say X and not Y, and then you could do it and see what happens. But if you don't have the hypothesis in advance of challenging power, then you're just observing how power behaves in response. Okay. You know, at some point, you do have enough information at which you can build a model, right? You can build a model and, you know, let, let's take the COVID public health response, for example. In the COVID health response, public health response, it was not clear at the beginning that the public health authorities were um, motivated by some objective other than trying to help the public. They could have been inept. We were all confused at first. But at some point, when you can predict that they will reliably object to any promising remedy that is not under patent, Right, and that they will uh, ignore any indication of hazard for the remedies that they have favored, that kind of thing. Well, the answer is, well, how many examples do I have to have before I imagine that this is more than some kind of uh, misunderstanding, right? Mm -hmm. It's like if your bank made a hundred errors on your bill and they all went in the bank's favor, Right. You'd have to say, well, what are the chances that they would make a, you know, if they made a hundred errors, but some of them went, you know, if roughly half of them went in my direction and roughly half of them went in the bank's direction, mm -hmm. then we could say, well, something's wrong at the bank. But um, at the point that the bank makes a hundred errors in its favor, we know what's wrong at the bank. And with regard to, let's say, the WHO or the CDC, um, when you begin to challenge them, and you see a, a pattern of behavior there, you're not only cha challenging them, you're also challenging the faith of everybody who um, believes them and follows them. Because, and, and there's a lot of incentives, at least with COVID, for people to believe what they're told because they're saving lives. The stakes are very high in that. So you can't just challenge power cleanly. You have to challenge also the faith that people are having in these institutions. And shaking that is gonna ruffle a lot of feathers. Well, not only ruffle a lot of feathers, it's hugely dangerous. Let's just agree. We can't live in a world where we have complex phenomena like viruses suddenly turning into global pandemics in which we can't trust anybody to tell us what's going on, right? That, that's lethal. If we simply don't trust anybody, that's going to get us into huge trouble. The problem is if the people that we are supposed to trust are captured and they are up to something other than protecting our health and, in fact, demonstrate a willingness to harm us as they or at least risk what, us in a way. Well, if, if they show a willingness to harm us, which means that they put us at risk, then uh, we have a serious problem. And it's not the fault of those who point out that the what we are being told is true is actually um, clearly not. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, 
I don't know what to do because I am not arguing that distrusting medical authority is a good idea. It's a terrible idea. But in mm -hmm. this case, mm -hmm. uh, it was better than the alternative. Mm -hmm. So when faced with uh, the world that we're faced with right now, where the powers that be or the entrenched powers or the ones who have all the prestige, let's say, New York Times, WAPO, all, our government, uh, the CDC, all these other organizations are constantly kind of being untrustworthy, whether like it's Scientific America, like arguing against the reality of biological sex or, you know, the uh, New York Times constantly doing all these op-eds that, you know, are race baiting that are not really good for us, kind of dishonest. Uh, where do we begin to start to put our where do we put our trust if we can't invest trust in these institutions? And because like that's this they were stabilizing our society on a massive scale. So if we can't. Yes. Stablers on that, where we go. Where this we go? is the entire reason that you and I have an audience, Benjamin. Oh. This is it. No. And I think people need to look directly into this abyss, right? If you're going to allow every institution to be captured by the same package of tricks, right? Yeah. If you don't come up with a defense against those tricks, they will all be captured. Why? For the same reason that you, there's nowhere in your kitchen that you can leave yogurt out that it's not going to get colonized by, uh, by fungi and bacteria, right? It's just going to happen. So institutions are resources. Those who want to get ahead in the world will capture them and they will do with them what they want. And what we've seen is effectively uh, a sabotage of the immune system of these institutions, which has left them vulnerable to capture. And in that world, right, where all of the things, you know, an AP fact check doesn't have facts in it and it doesn't check other people's facts. It's an opinion piece disguised as a fact check, right? In that world where the AP, the source that other news uh, entities get information from, has been compromised. When the CDC, the WHO, the universities, um, the White House, the... Uh, uh, the all social media platforms, and, yeah. when all of these things are spinning information in the interest of something you can't see, then what you're going to look for is anybody who's not doing it. Can I find somebody who's competent and has integrity and is actually trying to figure out what's going on, right? And the point is, uh, and I, I don't want to take away anything from you or from me or from Joe Rogan or Russell Brand or any of the people who have these large audiences um, in what is now effectively our business. But the reason that those audiences are so large and the reason that they dwarf all of these major media properties in terms of their influence is that these people aren't lying and the public has caught on to the lies and they are looking for people who aren't lying. It doesn't mean when you're not lying that you aren't wrong. You might be. But if you're going to be honest about it at the point you discover you're wrong, wow, you know, that's somebody to listen to. So, um, you know, well, the niche the niche is built of the failure of the institutions. Yeah. yeah. So there's the niche and then once some of us get big enough to be, be a threat, then we get the negative attention if we can fly under that radar we're still servicing a need without necessarily uh needing that big stick coming down on us but it doesn't seem like that's a sustainable uh, for the society 
Maybe maybe we could do good for ourselves, bigger or lesser, Joe or me, uh, put us on a spectrum. We could we could get by, but that's not going to change the structures. Harvard's not going to stop being Harvard. The New York Times is not going to stop being New York Times. The United States government is not going to stop. No, being no, that. it is. It actually okay. is. Okay. Um, the New York Times is not going to stop looking like the New York Times, and it's not going to stop using the tone that the New York Times uses. But the number of people who have figured out that the New York Times cannot be relied on to report a story straight if there is any political dimensionality to that story at all, right? The number of people who have figured that out is absolutely immense, right? Same for CNN, the Washington Post, right? So these things are, they don't have traction. They are losing traction. They are, Mm -hmm. they are becoming hollowed out entities and they are now resorting the whole reason that we're seeing the kind of authoritarian insanity that we are seeing emerge from the federal government i mean clear violations of the first amendment that would have had any patriotic american up in arms 20 you're years speaking ago. about malinformation disinformation and misinformation like they're misdis and malinformation um the uh, the ministry of truth this whole nonsense is responsive to the fact that the mechanisms for controlling people through narrative dispensed via these major media properties, it's not working, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't mean that those of us who challenge power are succeeding in uh, correcting the record, but we are succeeding in revealing that those okay. entities cannot be trusted. And you know, to your initial point, no, I'm not saying this is safe. You can't have a world in which we figure out what's true on podcasts. That's not a good idea. That's not safe. Podcasts are not a replacement for the university. They're not a replacement for a sober legislature, right? They are what we have resorted to. They are effectively the hills to which we have retreated mm. in the face of the complete collapse of the mechanisms that are supposed to reason and govern. Mm-hmm. That's where see, we are. To a certain extent, we're only doing negative work. We're not doing positive work. Until I can accredit somebody, I can't profess to be a professor online, right? I'm, I'm only revealing things. I'm not actually building something. No, I wouldn't say that, Benjamin. I, I, the fact is, we are doing good stuff. We are creating stuff online. And, you know, I, I, I believe you are... Uh, one of Evergreen's most important graduates, right? That you are, you are doing exactly what you were trained to do and you are not doing what you were told to do, right? Mm -hmm. Two things are distinct. Mm -hmm. And I also think uh, that Heather and I are bringing value to the world um, on our podcast with Mm -hmm. our book, et cetera. So I don't want to say you can't, you know, you can't build, it's just destructive. No, it's constructive, okay. but okay. it's, but what it isn't, there's no system, Yeah. right? You need it. to have a system in which we decide, you know, uh, let's suppose I, I did lose my mind at some point, right? Or I got captured somehow, right? We would have to know what mechanism is supposed to alert you that I am no longer a reliable channel. Well, there is no mechanism. People will tell you that this has happened already. It's not true. But they will tell you that. And so the point is now it's some giant shouting match. He said, she said, but 
we did have a system that worked. And, you know, the, the irony of the whole thing is that you don't know. We had a, we had a system that was wildly productive and also quite unfair. And if you were on the losing end of that unfairness, that was probably, it preoccupied you, right? It sucks to be in a system that mistreats you. That does not mean that the system itself is um, hmm. dispensable. I mean, imagine that we were involved in a very, I don't know, a high stakes card game on a ship, right? And let's say that the high stakes card game was rigged, right? It's like, well, this whole thing sucks. Let's sink the ship. Really? You don't think there's a possibility that we need the ship and that what we need to do is fix the rules of governance on the ship so that the card game isn't rigged anymore, Mm -hmm. right? And so what we had, you know, I mean, you can see this in the idea of defund the police, which, you know, Evergreen was the first case where we saw it wasn't defunding, but they were stood down by the president. And the, the point was, look, you will, you will understand the net effect of the police when they are gone, right? Until, until you understand the net effect because they've been eliminated, yeah. you will focus on what the police do wrong. And there's plenty that the police do wrong, yeah. but it doesn't come anywhere close to the net effect. You don't understand how much crime simply doesn't happen because when it does happen, somebody picks up a phone and a policeman shows up. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the, I guess what I'm saying is it's very easy to see how in a very productive society, people would not be aware of how much the society was doing for them, even as it was taking advantage of them, right? Even as it was stacked against them, just the simple fact of the highly productive society was serving all of us. And to sabotage that society and turn us over to the world that exists in the absence of those structures that make that society possible is insane. And it's something that if you've traveled to a place in the world where governance doesn't work, you like know immediately or maybe Portland. <laughs> well, right. So it's, look, San Francisco and Portland are illustrating this, they, but it's just the slightest hint of it so far. Right. We've withdrawn the police from Portland. I don't see them enforce the law almost ever. And people who have somebody break into their house and call, find it's hours before somebody shows up. Um, but for the most part, most people in Portland are still behaving themselves because they haven't realized that they, the thing that was keeping them in line is not present. Okay. So th- this is a interesting uh, thought experiment. If the thing that's keeping people in line is just their good nature rather than external force, only some people will just not have that internal nature and they're the ones who do crime. So there's got to be like some sort of interplay between personal morality and then enforcement of policy, right? So most people are probably not taking advantage of the law because they don't want to take advantage of the law. Maybe a speeding ticket here, maybe, you know, maybe a little right. thing but here, there, there. First of all, people's good nature comes about through development, right? Okay. And let's say that, you know, a child, a tiny child doesn't understand that just because you want the thing some other child has that you're not supposed to take it, right? And if you live in a world where you take the thing that the other child has and nobody says anything or worse, um, people rationalize that you had a right to do it, right? Then you don't become the good person who knows not to do that. So those of us who are good and do not take advantage of the fact that there, you know, is no enforcement mechanism 
in a position to uh, to hmm. to notice what we are up to. Yeah. Um, got that way through a system of incentives in development that was effective. And then it does become autopilot, right? And we prefer it that way. We don't, you know, yeah. I don't want to suddenly become aware of my opportunities to steal things. Um, it, it doesn't strike me as a road to somewhere good, right? <clears throat> but imagine that there are things, right? I know that there are no police enforcing uh, traffic laws, at the moment. I can tell that because I've been asking myself this question for a year now, right? How often do I see somebody pulled over? How much has this changed? And I almost never see anybody pulled over. So does that affect my decision when I'm uh, trying to figure out how to set the speed of my vehicle? Yeah, it does. Now, I'm not going to go into the zone where I think I'm putting anybody in danger, but there's some little margin there that comes from the fact that something is not being enforced. Now imagine that everybody has that margin, but that margin is of various different sizes. Some people, the only thing that's keeping them from stealing is the fact that they're, they fear the consequences. And for some people, this extends to willingness to harm others. Mm -hmm. Right. So what we are doing is we're basically saying, look, maybe we should have a society in which everybody sets their own moral limits. And it's like, huh, have you thought about what that society would look like and who would be served by it and who would be harmed? Right. Because I think that would, it would serve exactly the most ruthless people and it would harm exactly those who were self-regulated or regulated by belief in some higher authority. And I don't want to live in a society that, you know, rewards evil and, punishes goodness but that's the society we're we're flirting with flirting with yeah 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 I, I like the concept of the inherit we inherit the good we we inherit it from some sort of yeah we, we're taught it it's not we, necessarily inherent it, it, you know, it's, no let's say it this way we are built to acquire it in development okay we are built to discover what the limits are and to learn them and to take them on and you, you will, you don't have kids, so you haven't seen the, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've seen it with other people's kids, but there's a, an odd pattern where kids will be pushing limits. They'll be breaking rules and you'll punish them in order to prevent them from doing it. But you will note that they both don't want to be punished and are relieved to, to discover that there are limits, Right. So as they pick these things up, it's kind of it's one of these strange dual dual lessons. Um, But the good thing is, just as, um, you know, if you're fantastic at rock climbing, right, you face a rock wall and you don't have to think about every move. You climb it. Right. It becomes very intuitive and natural. Morality is like this, too, in the sense that. If your developmental environment had the proper lessons, you pick up how to interact with people and then you discover, oh, it's just better, right? Now, when it isn't better is when other people aren't in on the agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Or everybody's just acting like, what, what, what's the evolutionary math game that they made? Uh, what, what is it called? Uh, tit for tat? Oh, uh, yeah. Tit for, uh, you mean, uh, yeah. 
or why am I forgetting computer. the name of the, the game? Tit for tat is the strategy that emerges uh, in the game. But anyway, yes, it's it. You get into spirals of okay. uh, punishment and exploitation, and um, yeah. and if the mechanism of enforcing that externally, which basically makes us think twice about bending certain rules and makes other people and and ensures us that certain people won't break rules, and if they do, they'll be punished. Let's say the police or the government. If the government, which the police is just the arm of policy, so if that in and of itself is no longer doing its job. Or is not not just pulling punches. They're pulling the police, but Portland's not just pulling the punches of the police. They're they're actually restructuring. Or they're trying to restructure society around an ideal kind of fairness. I don't even know if they have a philosophy behind what they're trying. What, what their social experiment is. It's an experiment without a hypothesis. Maybe. maybe it's not an. Way. It's not an experiment, and it's not even a philosophy because what it is is the the product of a runaway process in which. In Portland, because Portland is so politically lopsided, there's no downside to one-upping your political opponent by virtue of being something that it seems farther left. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. If if one you know if one person wants uh, to decriminalize <clears throat> drugs um, because it's unfair to punish addicts for a physiological addiction right? Then the next person wants to supply drugs, right? And you just, it's a runaway process, but <clears throat> it has produced a Portland. I mean, Portland is still mostly functional, right? I still, I still live here and I don't, it's chill. It's I don't pretty, feel terror to go into town, but there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I worry about any of the members of my family being in a car on yeah certain roads at night because I know that there's a group of people that has discovered that they can hold drag races going the wrong way down a highway bridge. It happens. Portlanders discuss it. The police do not arrest these people. It's okay. the same people night after night. It's, you know, they're going to kill somebody. Okay. I don't want it to be anyone I know. I wish it wasn't going to be anybody at all. The remedy for it is obvious, but we're going to refuse to do it because at some level, the police have been successfully villainized and criminality has been valorized and uh, street drag racers are taking advantage of that idiocy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What you said about the Portland uh, political environment, they don't have a they, far be it from them even having a conservative opponent. They don't even have like a centrist op opponent. It doesn't seem like they have an opponent to match them and to call them out or say, that's too crazy. You have to like to rein them in. I'm just trying to transpose that on to the emergent work that we do when um, we're, we need to be regulated somehow. The podcasters, let's say, people who are outside of the shadow or in the shadow of the institutions. Uh, we're, we're not, you don't get a podcast badge. You can say anything. It could be as dangerous as you want. You know, you could convince everybody that to inject bleach, you know, you know, if you go crazy, nobody's going to stop you there. So um, in order for us not to go crazy or to go off the deep end, don't we need some sort of opponent or is there not some sort of struggle on that level that could keep us in line to keep this, uh, this unregulated podcast, uh, you know, information sphere in I mean, bounds. No, I, I think, I think you're mixing metaphors. Okay. Uh, 
the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. You know, what's to stop an author from writing a book that gives you terrible advice about um, your health or how to manage your finances or how to, you know, how to drive? Nothing, right? Somebody can give you bad advice. Um, but the question is, why will it catch on? And I don't want to see an environment in which <clears throat> podcasts that we all understand are wrong are somehow regulated out of existence because, of course, as soon as you create that mechanism, it will, of course, be wielded against people like me. And, yeah. you know, and it is. So um, we are stuck with the same paradox that the founders uh, grappled with. The fact is there's lots of speech that has no redeeming characteristic at all. And then that negative. Great. We'd, we'd be much better off without it. But there is no way to make a rule against that speech without turning it into a weapon against those who challenge power. But there's got to be some sort of regulatory mechanism that allows somebody with good ideas to rise up amongst the marketplace of ideas. And if it's not debate, dialectic, or some sort of opponent processing, then what would it be? Reputation and reputation threat? I mean, yeah. people can wield that against you with cancel we, culture. <clears throat> we are supposed to be repulsed by things that are repulsive. And we are supposed to discuss the fact that we are repulsed by them. And it is supposed to cause people who speak repulsively to... Um, Hmm. be shunned repulsion so so some sort of mechanism that's pre-moral pre-verbal pre-rational there's some sort of instinct that you're pointing to that that will regulate our sense making <clears throat> you know i mean the problem is we're, we're we're dealing with ancient stuff that was pretty well worked out in an environment whose parameters we have changed right if you lived in a group of you know maybe you lived in an environment in which there were 150 or 200 people that you might encounter. Well, that's above Dunbar's number, but you could, you could have a cautious approach to anybody you didn't know. <clears throat> you could get information very quickly about what their reputation was. And the fact is people who are honorable tend to leave a track record that reflects that people who are, um, not to be trusted, get reputations that cause people to be cautious about them. And of course, that incentivizes people to behave well, because mm -hmm. it's the only thing that works. Now, <clears throat> we have an environment that doesn't look like that, where people um, <clears throat> have both taken advantage of our distrust of uh, people with certain characteristics so accusations are leveled in order to cause revulsion for people who should not repulse us. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> my point is, game, yeah. um, I don't think we have a superior alternative to the marketplace of ideas and the fact yeah. that we develop a collective sense. I mean, you, you can see on Twitter <clears throat> the uh, incessant attempt to create the impression that Joe Rogan is right-wing, that he is stupid, that his audience are... Um, troglodytes and I was just going to say, and... yeah, troglodytes yeah. and <clears throat> incels, and that um, only a fool can't see through this simpleton, 
right? It's the kind of thing that no honest person who had watched a single podcast with Joe Rogan could possibly think. No person who's ever met him could think it. And yet, and this is what is uh, the implication of, you know, the tweets in the Joe Rogan trend that never seems to go away. So what is that? I would argue <clears throat> that the purpose of this is to take people who, if they checked it out for themselves, would certainly reach a different conclusion. The purpose is to keep them from checking it out. Yeah. Right. But fact, doesn't that always backfire? It's like the Lorenz effect. It's like you're drawing attention to the thing. You keep on putting it in people's path. Don't no, look at Joe Rogan. <laughs> now you're thinking of Joe Rogan. Don't think of Joe Rogan. Don't look at Joe Rogan. No, Isn't this that... is more this is more sophisticated. Um, and it's a trick that I, I'm sure it has a name. Maybe Edward Bernays uh, <laughs> labeled it, and I'm just not aware of it. But the trick involves, if I say to you, look, the only people who think Joe Rogan is a decent guy are people who are, um, you know, too gullible to uh, be allowed in public without a chaperone, right? If I say that to you, and then you go listen to a Joe Rogan podcast, and you think, he seems all right to me. Ah, guess what category you just entered? You're somebody who's so gullible that you need a chaperone in public. So that's a trap. It's a Kafka trap. And most people aren't smart enough to figure their way out of it. And so it's not that they conclude that the, the uh, anti-Joe Rogan voices are correct. What they conclude is, I don't know what's going on here, right? We got a bunch of people who say anybody can see through this guy. And I don't know what I saw, right? Maybe it was just an episode where he was particularly good at fooling people. I don't know what that was. So what they do is they walk away. Mm-hmm. Right. And <clears throat> that's my concern is that the purpose is to prevent direct experience that would falsify the garbage narrative. And but it just doesn't make sense because if it's constantly trending, like Joe, every five days, Joe Rogan's got like a 30,000 thing trending. Do, it's like, doesn't matter. The number of people who think that there is something right wing about Joe Rogan or his podcast is large. There's nothing right wing about his podcast. There's nothing mm -hmm. right wing about his politics. But if you think I'm a left winger, and if there's one thing I know, it's that okay. the right wing is cracked, right? And then you hear Joe Rogan, right winger, Joe Rogan, right winger, right? Well, you're very aware of Joe Rogan. So it's backfired if the idea was to hide the guy or to drive him into obscurity. Yeah. But from the point of view of, boy, it would take a lot for me to choose to engage with this thing. Do I become right-wing if I listen to Joe Rogan, right? So I, th I think you're underestimating Weird. how effective it is in taking people who would ultimately be won over and preventing them from ever getting anywhere near it. Okay. I, it just, it, it, I, I mean, I grapple with this too. I, I'm immersed in this information market. I have to categorize things. So I, I use very crude heuristics 
right wing, left wing, Marxist, neoliberal, you know, I, I sort these things and then I kind of accumulate kind of a, a repulsion to a certain category. And then I kind of try to slot things into that category that, that trigger something. Maybe it's a wordplay or they're on the wrong other side of the issue. And then I'm like, oh, this thing. And I've been trying to watch myself engage with information specifically through Twitter. One, just don't do a, don't do a angry response unless you can be clever. And it's got to be really clever before you can do something negative about something. Just trying to wean myself off of reacting negatively to that in order to kind of try to see things clearly, even though I still see I still see something that I disagree with. I still see some sort of, you know, wokeness, whatever that word means, you know, um, that, that, that's kind of either a lens or a way of interpreting that data or just ways that people are behaving and stuff. So. I can understand that somebody who's not as invested as me or is trying to actually uh, who's tasked by my viewership to do good work in this way would not be incentivized to you know do a couple extra steps to try to figure out these informations. But just people disliking something because it's right wing doesn't even make sense to me anymore. Like what's wrong with right? Do we even know what that word means anymore other than bad? It's just like what what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a. Uh, a framework that is consistent and I don't see anything that, that is it like a tetrahedron it. something It's no longer like the, the no the it's basically it's it's like a... the right <clears throat> the right is reflexively cautious about change which makes them uh, miss the opportunity to improve things that can be made better yeah and the left has a reflexive desire to fix problems without an appreciation for the unintended consequences that often come along with solution making. And so my basic feeling is, look, I don't, you know, I, I don't get involved in these battles over, well, that's, that's liberal. That's not progressive. Right? No, my basic feeling is left, right is not necessarily the most useful uh, continuum for the moment, but it's still plenty useful. People do. I, yeah. I am, uh, very inclined towards solution making at the yeah. moment. Uh, my conservative side is certainly showing though, because there's all sorts of things that work pretty well. And instead of engaging in rational solution making and fixing what may still be wrong with them, we're talking about throwing them out. Okay. Right? Everything really. Yeah. And so, you know, in any case, I, I don't, I don't think that there's so much of a problem about, these things have become jerseys yeah. and people are rooting for their team against the other team. And it's preposterous because it, it, no rational person would see it that way. Okay. So the, what you're hitting on is a big part of your work, evolutionary biology. Uh, you're in Heather's book, the hunter guy, uh, the hunter gatherer's guide to the 21st century. It's on my shelf right over there. Explores how we are supplanted from the Sahara. I'm just going to dumb this down. Supplanted from the Sahara into uh, these iPhone wheel. Jesus, not the Sahara, man. Or, At least, uh, you know, uh, take us to the Serengeti, someplace we Serengeti. can do a little hunting. There's, you know? a, there's an S word in there. Um, <laughs> but uh, so you're keenly aware of tribal dynamics. And a lot of your work uh, publicly and in your research is about the tribal dynamics. So how do we either create a structure where this uh, the civil war that we're playing with on Twitter um, not just doesn't spill out into violence, but actually kind of just works productively how do we you know make a purple uh, banner over that how do we how do we uh, make a little bit more room for this left white or even we can even go 
down to our level, woke, anti-woke. How do we get the anti-woke and the woke to get along? I have to just simply point out that you said left white. (laughs) I think you need to correct that. It's a hell of a Freudian. I did a Biden. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. For the record, I don't think that was a Freudian slip. Left away. uh, Um, how do we how do we overcome our uh, this tribal dynamic? It's boring. That's one way of attacking it. But no, look, I, I will give you a status report because that's that's where I am with it. At the okay, moment. I think uh, I was and Heather and I were doing a really good job. And actually, there was quite a number of people. You know, uh, my brother coined the term IDW. There was a large group of people, and what we were successfully doing was carving out a nuanced position that was neither fish nor fowl, right? It was simply built based on an agreement about what the objective of the exercise was. It was to Mm -hmm. figure out what is going on to defend things that work, right? To identify things that don't. And it was going pretty well. Now, what happened to me next was that that very instinct, right? The instinct to continue to try to find a position that was built of the evidence available and not subject to the team dynamics that seemed to break out across everything created a firestorm in the context of COVID. And the irony is that here we are, you know, two plus years into the pandemic and our method worked quite well, right? We did identify things early. We found it, you know, basically we are, we are told there were two camps, right? The two camps are COVID's nothing. It's a minor illness. It's not serious, right? And COVID's everything and we have to tear civilization apart. We've got to put everything on hold. We've got to lock it all down and mask everybody, right? Those were supposedly the two camps. Well, neither of those camps fits Heather and me. Right? We said from the beginning, this is a very dangerous disease, and here's why it's dangerous. Much more dangerous than the case fatality rate suggests. Hmm. Why? It attacks more tissues. It behaves unpredictably. Um, <clears throat> so we weren't in either camp. But what happened to us was we were portrayed by one side as in that other extreme camp. So, <clears throat> And that stuck your- with you over the iterations of uh, different... Um, sense-making activities so over the course of the development of the story of COVID. You guys were, uh, there's, is it dangerous or not dangerous? Is it this or that? Is it this or that? Is this or that? It, it took over just, our lives. Just I mean, take, take a bike ride. Like that was even you being an anti-vaxxer. Just go outside, take a walk, get some vitamin D. Right. I, you know, yeah. You know, go outside. Just the whole thing. It just like, it was a cascade. You were all, you were all of a sudden, sorry, going there. Nazi. Like there's no other way to see you other than that. Like right. The, Yeah. So what that the reason I raise it is that it answers your question, because what took place before covid is the answer to what we are supposed to do. Right. We are supposed to carve out that non ideological middle ground. Right. And I don't mean middle ground because the tepid middle Mm -hmm. is any good. The tepid middle is no good. The tepid middle is rarely where the truth is. Yeah. But the middle is where we meet to discuss it. And. Um, the problem is that those who were able 
to carve out a nuanced position on race, on sex and gender, right? The anti-woke middle, right? Created, it actually succeeded in repelling the argument that um, the uh, revulsion at the woke ideology was inherently somehow right-wing, right? Mm -hmm. We correctly succeeded in making the point that there was a decidedly liberal and progressive viewpoint that also had no patience for wokeness because it made no sense and it challenged things that we need to function like science, right? Mm -hmm. So that's proof of concept. We know that doing this can work. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you, the, uh, the public's understanding of that middle ground position evolved over the period of time from May of 2017, when I became identified with it, um, to just before COVID, uh, <clears throat> it evolved quite a bit and it, it proves that it is possible. And it proves that it is actually not only possible, hmm. but, um, it is wildly popular. People don't want to be driven into these two camps. They yeah. love it when they have some alternative that involves actually figuring out the nuance. The, the force of power that was associated with the COVID narrative, however, was a whole other order of magnitude. And so yeah. the thing that was possible with respect to, um, to the woke ideology was not possible in COVID space. And the COVID dissidents paid an absolutely huge price reputationally. Um, mm -hmm. So um, what you're looking for, it exists, but it has to somehow be scaled to the force arrayed against it. Yeah, see, that's that's the question that I have to return to our abstract uh, dire or dour uh, conversation about power. I, I think that the IDW, and we don't have to name any names, I think once uh, power got involved in it, reputation, like that changed the dynamics. When it was just nerds talking on podcasts, but when it started to gain traction, that already changed it. And even, I don't want to name any names, even people who were supporting that, you saw, uh, let's say, wolves saw like there's power here there's power here we're gonna angle it i don't know if the idw type protocol to borrow ryan's uh, metaphor for it can scale because power is going to start to motivate everybody to act in other than just this honest conversation space it's always going to unless we can figure out a way to accept the de devolution into teams and then the re-emergence of honest conversation um I think that that's, it's, it's going to just calcify and there's just going to need to go through a process of calc calcification, um, f pugilism, and then kind of reconciliation. Well, <clears throat> I, 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 if I, uh, I think you may be expecting a process that continues to ebb and flow in ways that are familiar. I'm not sure that that's where we are in history. I, oh. I worry that we are somewhere else. We're in really torpid climbs. Is that what you're saying? Um, I think that during COVID, in part because of COVID, we became unmoored. And we are now hmm. adrift in waters we know nothing about. 
So I don't know what to make of the inflationary pattern and the seeming indifference to amplifying it. I don't know what to make about shortages that are uh, emerging. I don't know what to expect COVID to do in the winter. It's not behaving in the summer or as summer approaches Mm. as we would hope it would behave. And I fear, I fear both what it will do as a highly unusual virus and what we humans will be subjected to with respect to uh, new, new mandates. Mm -hmm. But all of that strikes me as a, oh, not unlike evergreen, a fixed volume in which the temperature is being turned up. Right. Mm -hmm. And the pressure is rising Mm -hmm. and, um, in, in some sense, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is the very fact that power has failed to deliver a narrative and get it accepted, right? Many people accepted it. Others rejected it flat out, even if they don't know what they rejected it in favor of. And then there were some of us who tried to figure out what the, what the real narrative or what the real facts were and what narrative would go with them if, if we could give voice to it. That um, that interplay is part and parcel of power losing control. And the problem is that they're not synonyms, right? Mm. They're, they're related, but <clears throat> power is now going to display new tools, right? It's going to display new tools and try to reestablish control. And, uh, hmm. well, I, I think it's, it's uh, rough waters ahead. Yeah. Um, so we started this late, so we'll wrap up even though we could go longer if we started at 10 a.m., but we both need to eat and you need to get to your actual vodka and stop drinking your schlubby <laughs> water. I'm kidding. Um, no alcohol in this podcast ever. I do um, drink. I don't drink vodka. There's interesting ideas emerging about counter narratives or counter even ideologies and stuff. There's uh, some really interesting talk about religious narratives and resurrecting them. Um, that, that's just one example, but that's uh, the, the good and the bad part about religion is that at least it's coherent. Even when it's not coherent, you can kind of like, it's got an outline. This, this is what I believe. And it's got like some sort of mantra thing. And then you can have like years of theology or centuries of theology around it. Um, so I'm just wondering, um, you have a toolkit that's scientifically based and uh, we, we've spoken about this before, so you can correct me uh, insofar as I'm wrong about this, but you have a manner of engaging with information broadly construed. Uh, You have a a stance toward it um, and you have a a kind of a moral guiding light there. Um, It's, it's, it's scientific, it's liberal. It's not as uh, not concrete, but as imaginarily um, evocative as a religion, Um, but it's very adaptable and it can make a sense of a lot of things. And so I guess what I'm trying to ask of you is what are the emerging possibilities or the places where, uh, the conversations that we could be going toward that could one, give us a sense of stability in this unstable time and also kind of work toward uh, solving the deeper shifts that, that kind of inform uh, the, the, the immediate problems that we have. Uh, Beautiful. 
<clears throat> I think I think I get your question. There's a lot of positive potential in this moment. The peril that I spoke of a couple of minutes ago is the flip side of the opportunity. And <clears throat> I should just say, as COVID unfolded, and as Heather and I started doing live streams, trying to figure out as biologists what it meant and what we were supposed to do, it became clear quickly. I mean, it initially became clear that there was something very wrong with the origin story of the virus, right? And that um, laboratory origin was far more likely than natural origin. And then it became clear that there were issues with early treatments that were um, not being administered and about which the story was decidedly false. And then there was a question about the safety and effectiveness of vaccines and the epidemiological wisdom of deploying them into the, the face of a, an active global pandemic. <clears throat> and the whole time, I, I do think that the biological questions surrounding COVID are fascinating. Um, but my hope was that if we used scientific tools to unpack what was really taking place, if people could see that their newspapers, that the television networks, that the platforms that they're on, that the government, that industry, that all of these things were not giving the straight story, that all of these institutions had failed, that that would actually, for the first time, allow a conversation across civilization in which we could say, you know what? Something has occurred that's wrecked every institution at once. And I truly believe it's every institution above a very tiny size, right? They're all corrupted. Now, on the one hand, that is a terrifying situation to face. On the other hand, it only gets worse if we don't fix it. So from my perspective, the moment at which a sufficient number of us make eye contact with the level of corruption that has taken over our system, that's the moment we hit bottom and start to go back up. That's the moment at which we begin to discuss, well, okay, what do we do about it, right? Now, we didn't get there. My hope was that those topics, the, the laboratory origin the question of how to treat COVID and the question about the vaccines and, and what their impact was. Those three stories were clear enough that had we not faced the immense power deployed to shut down the proper discussion, that actually it would have revealed the failure of journalism, tech, government, all of it simultaneously. And then we could have had that conversation. So we got close. Mm -hmm. We paid a very high price for it. Yeah. But nonetheless, where this leaves us is we still have to get to the point that a sufficient number of people have made eye contact with the level of dysfunction of our institutions that okay. they then, you know, don't have to be dragged to the table to talk about what to do. That's really where we need to go. So um, to try to not push back at you, but what I'm thinking of is actually a problem of attention um, because 
Oh, COVID's COVID's done. Ukraine, uh, abortion, uh, uh, like like people aren't making eye contact because they're constantly looking at the next current thing. So this is this is one argument, very loosely, very loose argument about something along the lines of what Peugeot is pointing out about patterns of attention. If we can get these basic patterns, that will sync us up together. And Peugeot, Jonathan Peugeot, he uses a religious framework, but that seems to ground attention on a you know on a physical level and on an imaginary level and then the mind can operate within that without some sort of framework some sort of pattern with with all of the the fractures of our attention and liberalism is a great tool protocol for discussing things but if we can't even agree on the language anymore if we can't even sit down and talk about one thing for long enough to make sense of it without being intruded on i don't know how we kind of get on the same playing field well you know <clears throat> i actually think and even even of... if even if covid was the hugest crisis you could come up to that would make us all look at one thing at one time even that fractured our attention in a thousand ways because there's no. 20 research papers on every different position right no in this case it was a gigantic force opposed to certain conclusions that many would have reached if it had Independent. not been okay um disincentivized but with respect to how, how it could happen, there was something about the early, and you know, neither you nor I were early in the podcasting thing or the video podcasting thing, but you know, early enough. There was something about the early environment in which people with big channels went on each other's shows all the time. Right. And the basic point is there's something confusing and new and different about that. Right. It, you know, it's like Tom Brokaw showing up on, uh, you know, Walter Cronkite's news program. It's like, wait, I don't actually know that they're on two different networks. I don't remember. I, I know that Cronkite was <laughs> you're, CBS. You're but, way back. <laughs> right. But my point is usually these channels are, um, delivery mechanisms and they're independent of each other the podcast universe because it was small and quirky and weird and nobody knew what it was podcasters would go on each other's podcasts right it was just a kind of thing that they did to kind of build each other up and it made for interesting conversations but the point is look just as you and i are doing right here okay this is going on your channel but that's my logo back there okay so it's you know if you're a dark horse fan and you're on the voice of reason channel right you get a little dark horse the point is it, it it's clear that these things have a horizontal relationship too mm. and mm. my point is how does how do we get to the conversation how do we get to the framework in which we actually have a conversation about the failure of our institutions and what to do about it all of those of us who have seen it talking to each other about the fact that it is very real. We may have very different perspectives. I'm sure you and I have a different perspective on the collapse of our institutions, but we probably don't have a terribly different perspective on the fact of their collapse, right? You know, <laughs> you might, there might be institutions that you still hold out hope for. I really don't at this point. I see them all having gone. But, um, but nonetheless, the point is, look, you bring an audience. I bring an audience. Rogan, Brand. Yeah. Eric, Keep circulating that. Justin Peterson. Yeah. Justin Peterson. Wow. Where, where I must be tired. From? I don't know. Jordan, <laughs> I apologize. Um, Justin. 
I, I hope I have not invented a, a character. But anyway, the point is, look, we were having that conversation and then we stopped having it because COVID disrupted everything. And now we're caught in this whiplash of the current thing. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. we need to keep doing that thing. We cultivate a relationship with an audience. That audience straddles multiple discussions. We have discussions with each other. And increasingly, we have to focus on the fact that one element that links many of the stories, maybe most of the stories that we're actually uh, preoccupied with, is the failure of the institutions that allows this stuff to happen, mm -hmm. right? You, you know, the, the uh, evergreen story and the trans activism story obviously aren't totally independent, right? Suddenly, um, so Buck Angel and Blair White and others <clears throat> are standing up and saying, no, trans activism isn't trans, and we got a problem. So how did this happen? In part, the collapse of our institutions have caused, you know, our schools, for example, mm -hmm. to dispense wrong information about sex and gender, to dispense it to children who are far too young to be hearing about a lot of the topics that they're being uh, supposedly taught. Um, so so is, is this an argument for common sense? Like, don't necessarily uh, trust the science, TM. I'm not saying I'm making fun of that, but like kind of trust humanity, trust common sense, keep on talking, keep no. communicating. Look, it's an argument for something I really don't want to advocate for because it's, you know, just like saying that podcasting is not a, uh, a replacement for universities. This system isn't a replacement for uh, a, a properly structured um, governance apparatus. Yeah. But the reason that we have an audience is that people trust us. They're not wrong. Okay. Surely lots of people will make fun of us. Oh, he says they're not wrong. Yeah, I say they're not wrong, right? Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that people should trust my judgment or your judgment or anybody's judgment. I don't trust anybody's judgment entirely, not even mine, right? That's part of being human. It's part of being an adult. But I do trust um, my motivations. I know that I am trying to do the right thing and that when I do the wrong thing, and I discover that I've done the wrong thing, I try to put it right. Um, and I know um, I know this of many of the people who's, in fact, I'm, I probably am not interested in the conversations of anybody I can't say that about. And so hmm. um, the different channels that involve people who have gravitated to somebody that they trust for some reason coming together and then having a discussion in which we sort of learn each other's languages. We learn what each other are focused on. We fill in each other's blind spots and all of that. That does form a kind of foundation for uh, something on which we can build. And, you know, hmm. does it come close to replacing uh, major newspapers, uh, a government? Organized no. religion. <laughs> organized religion and <laughs> university system. No, but how did those things get built in the first place? Exactly. Right. So we got to start there, unfortunately. Well, um, Brett Weinstein. Yes. Benjamin uh, Boyce. You, you, uh, I, 
I, I'm sad we only get to talk once a year, but at least we get to talk once a year uh, on, on this uh, podcast thing. But it is the five-year anniversary of the Evergreen State College, which launched, launched us into this virtual uh, <laughs> reality. So uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to, to be associated with you over uh, these really crazy times, really phenomenally crazy times. Well, thank you. Benjamin, and I will say, um, I think I must have said this on at least one podcast before, but it, it uh, looms large for me. So I'll say it again. Um, you and I did not know each other. I was not standing next to you in that freaking hallway at 9.30 a.m. on May 23rd. It was not me. <laughs> yeah, maybe be... in profile, but is, that wasn't me. No, that was not you. Um, yeah, we didn't know each other. And I will say that as crazy as everything that has followed from that event has been that discovering you, uh, an Evergreen alum, um, you know, I, I remember the first time I ever laid eyes on you, you were uh, broadcasting from the library. Oh, God. You were, your phone was held vertically, but you, unlike the rest of us, were doing it ironically. Uh, <laughs> Even you were vertical videoing. Even I was vertical video. I, nobody ever told me. And, you know, you'd think it's the kind of thing. Um, Frankie, Frankie, your student Frankie, she got the nice wide shot. She got the nice wide. Yeah, she got she got the wide shot. She did yeah. the landscape video. Anyways. Cool. Well, in any case, it's been a delight discovering uh, you and watching you flourish and um, develop turn the insanity of evergreen into uh, a new path for yourself. And um, I also am, I don't know, troubled, but not surprised that evergreen doesn't understand that the very fact of your success on the internet is um, it is a demonstration and a powerful one of much of what existed in the evergreen that uh, that I so loved teaching at, right? Mm -hmm. You really, you uh, you don't just talk to talk, you walk the walk and evergreen should be tremendously proud of having produced you. And instead it is quite the opposite. Which, I don't know, um, we'll see. We'll tells see. you everything you need to know. Maybe you'll get a plaque. Maybe you'll get a plaque. Um, I don't think I'm getting a plaque. I mean, unless it's launched at a particularly high rate. Of or hanging speed. from a particular tree. Sorry to go there. What? I was to say maybe hung from a, a particular tree in a certain way, but. From a particular tree. I was just like, like a, it was, I was doing a lynching. I was just like saying maybe they'll, they'll, they'll make a plaque just to lynch it. It was, it was crude. Oh, that is crude. crude. Yeah. Really, I'm going to go back to not understanding what you're talking okay, about. Yeah. Yeah. Go back to that. Yeah. Well, um, cool. Let's uh, wrap up the recording. So thank you for coming on to my channel, Brett, at the, uh, May 23rd, 2022. Um, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on and uh, enjoy the anniversary. Yeah. Keep it going. You guys are doing great work. Great Appreciate work. That. Love your stuff. <laughs>